0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Sacchallariatus, the host of the channel. On the show today, we are pleased to have Dr. John Lindsay, an assistant professor of digital media and global affairs at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. We'll be talking to Dr. Lindsay today about his new book, Information Technology and Military Power. John Lindsay, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks very much, it's great to be here.
1: Dr. Lindsay, I'd like to start with the introduction to this book, where you detail some experiences you had while on deployment as a US Naval officer. It was clear that your time in the military left an imprint on you, and the book that follows seems to be a fulfillment of certain ideas that began germinating during your deployment. Tell us about that.
0: Absolutely, this book is, uh, in many ways, a very personal project. You know, I'm right now a professor of political science and international relations. If you would have asked me um, if I had an interest in that or I would have foreseen that future uh, in college, I would have said no way. Right. I was interested in uh, philosophy, computer science, artificial intelligence. But I had paid for my undergraduate education uh, through the Naval Reserve Officer Training uh, Corps. uh so uh, owed the Navy some t- some time, and immediately found myself uh, working as an intelligence officer in the naval aviation community, and sent forward to the uh, U.S. Joint Task Force headquarters during the Kosovo operation, um, and that was. Uh, really, really eye-opening to be a very, very junior person um, uh, looking at uh, target intelligence, looking at uh, information about what kinds of things we were considering for the bombing campaign and whether it would meet these objectives, and so on and so forth, and then watching our handiwork on CNN uh, the next day. So uh, that was a bit of a surreal experience to see that um, here I'm working in this uh, very comfortable office-like digital Environment. Uh, and yet clearly our actions are having incredibly real and dramatic uh, uh, effects for people uh, hundreds of miles away. So that sort of started this long odyssey of thinking about the relationship between uh, organizations, technology and war as we started to enter this new and strange reality where uh, the people that were fighting war were far away from its physical effects. So, uh, so yeah, that that really was a formative experience for me, and in many ways, this book is kind of uh, unpacking uh, that that experience.
1: Well, let's jump right in. In in chapter one, you introduce what you call the technology theory of victory. You then go on to do a few things, which I'm going to try to summarize. You explain why we should be skeptical of the theory, why it continues reappearing and how we should really think about the relationship between information, technology, and war. How'd I do? (laughs) Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh,
0: Yeah, I I use this uh, this idea of the technology theory of victory. It's not a phrase that anybody else uses. Uh, In fact, um, this is a recurring idea that has been known by lots of different names. So um, you can look in the 1970s, there was an idea of the electronic battlefield. Okay, In the 1980s, the Russians looked at things that the Americans were doing, and they described an emerging reconnaissance strike complex. There was all this enthusiasm in the 1990s for a revolution in military affairs. Uh, the Chinese borrowed the same idea. They started talking about informatization, or Wa of war. Um And you can see some of these same ideas today in the way that people are talking about artificial intelligence and quantum computing. And in a nutshell, it's the idea that new information technologies will make it possible to gather more information, fuse that information into a more accurate picture of the battle space, and then use that to target increasingly precise weapons. This suite of seeing everything, coordinating everything, and being able to attack anything will make war, and people vary on how they describe this, uh, more dramatic, more decisive, uh, certainly more speedy. That's a recurring theme. And so there's this idea that, again, recurs again and again, even though the technology is constantly changing. So that's sort of what I mean by the technology theory of victory. Um, And once you put it in that historical context, right, it's obvious that uh, it hasn't always worked out that well, right? We've seen uh, lots and lots of disappointing military experience uh, from the United States and from others uh, over the course of the last several decades while these theories were being articulated. So uh, that's a little bit of a puzzle. Uh, Number one, why does the theory not work? Number two, uh, given that it doesn't seem to play out, um, why do practitioners keep embracing it uh, over and over again? So, you know, this is kind of an interesting regularity that the, that the book is meant to unpack. Um, this idea that I call the technology theory of victory, right, is a species of what scholars in general would talk about as technological determinism. The idea that technology, especially new technologies, will force... Politics and economics in very specific directions so this is an effort to really problematize and question that assumption
1: And you argue that um, there is something even if the the theories are wrong, there is something um, that we should be taking away from the fact that people keep returning to, to returning to technology, and that has to do with the way the battlefield has changed um, as a result of militaries becoming more reliant upon technology, as a means to understand the battle space. Can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think there's a couple of ways to look at this. Um, you know, I'm not the first to criticize these ideas. Um, you know, especially in the 1990s and the 2000s, um, there was a big allergic reaction both from scholars and especially from officers in the ground forces. And we can talk about that later if you want. Uh, against these technocentric ideas that technology would it would change a war, and so most people just attacked this and said uh, this is crazy. Uh, you know, war is inherently uh, frustrating, uh, difficult, uncertain, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, you can say, Hey, these are just bad ideas. And so people are confused. And the fact that they keep reinventing them just means, uh, they don't understand the nature of war. They don't understand history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't want to do that. I want to kind of find this middle ground that says, you know what, Uh, This has, you know, technology has not had no effect. There have been effects and there are certainly cases in which technology has made a difference. It just hasn't always made a difference. So clearly there's some condition going on. So you kind of think that there's there's two arguments. One, the revolution in military affairs has not been uh, has not had the performance that its original optimists and boosters expected. But number two, it also hasn't failed the way that it's critics expected. And when it succeeded, it wasn't always for the reasons that the boosters originally expected. So it's sort of pointing out that there must be some uh, other conditions, and these conditions are not technological conditions. They have to do with strategy and organizations that um, that 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 condition whether technology is going to have an effect. So that's that's kind of the first argument. It's trying to take this middle road between optimism and pessimism by pointing out that the effectiveness of technology is really conditional on more social and organizational factors. The next. Um, observation which you mentioned is, um, hey, while there have been very ambiguous effects with regard to military performance on the battlefield, we can see that there have been serious changes in the ways that militaries, advanced industrial militaries, organize themselves and the way that military labor has changed. So if you go into any of nato or even chinese or uh you know, japanese or from american certainly military unit uh, you're more likely to see people working uh in office like settings right working with screens uh working in meetings right having remote calls right having video teleconferences doing things that look like office work very very different from You know sort of the traditional picture of military activity in the mud in jets ships on battlefields right and so there's been this shift from physical labor and physical fighting on the battlefield to intellectual work to cognitive work in remote office spaces uh and you can look at this in a lot of different ways so there are more military specialties that emphasize uh, intelligence and computer management and space and uh, administration, right? All these things that have to do with information management rather than um, operations. Uh, there are more computers in uh, militaries, there are more complexity in headquarters organizations. Headquarters uh, are large and sprawling. Um, military sometimes talk about the relationship between tooth to tail. Tooth your combat forces, tail your support forces. And uh, the tail has been growing at uh, a large clip even as the overall size of military organizations have been shrinking. So there is this really, really dramatic change in the form of military organizations, even though this hasn't translated to dramatic changes in the effects of
1: these organizations. My favorite line I think in the in the whole book was where you write it wrote that the um, informational turn uh, in warfare is the product not of the digital computer but the rise of the general staff. So thanks for explaining that. I think it's important to setting up your core argument which I want to get into right now. So what is information practice and how does it relate to military performance?
0: Great. Thanks for that question. So Uh, I use this term information practice and, you know, kind of the intuitive meaning is what practitioners do with information. So uh, this whole project was not to kind of have yet another diatribe against the revolution in military affairs or network centric warfare. It was to ask what are military personnel actually doing in these environments? Given that you have all these changes that I just described, and you have people that are working in these remote, uh, information-intensive, uh, digitally-reliant uh, environments, right, so they're totally using a lot of technology, question is, well, what are they actually doing? Um, and so all of the cases, which we'll talk about in a moment, are kind of deep dives, both historically and in pieces in the field of more modern operations, um, trying to look at how people actually interact with things. And so information practice refers to that, but specifically it refers to the ways in which people use technology to make sense of the world and to exert some influence on the world. And in the process, deal with a lot of the breakdowns and frictions that occur when they're trying to do that. So information practice is just a question of like, what are practitioners doing and how are they dealing with the constant uh, problems that are inherent with large organizations working in this information intensive environment?
1: And you identify two um, key components to this in the Internal environment and the external environment, and you use this metaphor of a bridge to explain how um, good information pr- practice is achieved. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, so you know, maybe it's helpful to go a little bit back to first principles here. You know, we all live in the information age, we're surrounded by information, but there's a surprising uh, kind of lack of understanding of what this information stuff really is and you know i think we all sort of intuitively go to bits and bytes right we're like ah, the information is the stuff that's online the stuff that's being transmitted the stuff that's on disc and certainly that's part of it but you can get information from a lot of different places can be about a lot of different things so uh I think that the very helpful way for understanding information, and there's a lot of, kind of philosophy and kind of linguistics that is behind this, is as a relationship. And in a military context, kind of the most simple level, right? Uh, information is a relationship between things that are dangerous and far away, or maybe they haven't yet happened. They're your plans, or they've happened in the past, or intelligence. Right? Um, relationship between things that are far away and uh, pictures, reports, uh, diagrams, figures that are very, very close. And so the question is, well, how do you manage that relationship? So information practice is about managing this relationship between things that are close and things that are far away. Uh, So if you think of it as a relationship, well, there's two points. And so one endpoint is the environment that you want to know about, you want to influence. The other endpoint is the organization where you're actually looking at what's going on and you're coming up with plans for what you want to do so uh if we have a really stable relationship we have two stable endpoints then it is easy to establish kind of movement back and forth information data coming in about the environment uh, data going out telling people what they should do if you have kind of a really really stable if, you have, if one of those sides is unstable, say you've got a lot of turbulence uh, at one side of this bridge or one side of the link, in order to maintain the link, the other side is going to have to compensate for it. So this is kind of the the basic intuition in the kind of books theory is that if you've got stability in the environment and stability in the organization, it's possible to, uh, to establish good information practice that helps you understand and influence the world. If... However, you have a really, really turbulent environment, then you need to have lots of flexibility in the organization. That doesn't guarantee you're going to have good information, but at least you now have the ability to start to repair and adapt to those changes. What I'm trying to hopefully try to convey with this bridge metaphor is, you know, if you imagined uh, a canyon and one side had earthquakes and was shaking, the other side didn't move at all that shear would you know, rip that bridge apart, and you'd never be able to get across. So um, having a turbulent environment and a stable organization or a turbulent organization and a stable environment, either of these could lead to potentially bad outcomes. So that was sort of my attempt to try and simplify a great deal of complexity in this whole idea of information technology and the relationship between the organization and the environment.
1: You go on to identify four uh, control mechanisms, which you call sociotechnical institutions. And those are intentionality, measurement, coordination, and enforcement. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, so, so, what you're talking about here are kind of breaking out the components of what I've called information practice. So uh, you know, I, I kind of just colloquially said, hey, information practice is about people trying to understand and influence the world. Okay, well, we can unpack that a little bit. And if you imagine kind of a classic control loop or what in the military people since the 1970s have talked about as the OODA loop, right? Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. And This is the idea that data comes in, you combine it with data in memory, you decide what you want to do, and you go back out into the world to do something, okay? So uh, you've got information coming in. I call that measurement. Uh, You've got the coordination of uh, all the parts of the organization internally, with data store, processes, et cetera. I call that coordination inside of the organization. And then you've got the translation of information back into what you want to do in the world. I call this enforcement, right? But then there's this other really important component, intentionality. And that is, well, figuring out what you actually want to do, right? if you want to measure things, you need to know what you need to look at. What's important? Well, that's that's a value judgment. Um, if you want to do things in the world, you have to come up with goals. Um, you have to come up with intentions. You have to come up with uh, rules of engagement, right? Uh, these are all functions of intentionality. Um, so, And the reason I use this kind of interesting language, uh, measurement, control, and enforcement, rather than UDA or sensing and acting, is I'm really trying to underscore that all of these functions are inherently organizational they're inherently institutional they depend on the cooperation of people in an organized space to bring that data into the organization to figure out how they're going to manage it to translate their effects into the world, to figure out what they want to do, right? Those are all social organizational problems. So so these are kind of kind of the fine-grained details of what we really mean by information practice, this management of the relationship between the environment that you're trying to understand and affect and the organization that is is acting and responding to that environment.
1: So the theory you develop has unique implications over the short term and over the long term. What are exploitation and reform? and why do they matter?
0: Okay, uh, so I guess I should back up and kind of answer both of those questions, right? So if if information practice is the management of this relationship, then the question is, well, uh, is that managed well or is it managed poorly? So as you mentioned, there are kind of two different claims and one is a claim of what's happening in the short term. Do you have a match between the environment and the organization? Right? Is there a stable organization that matches a stable environment? If so good things can happen. Um, you have flexibility in the organization when you have a turbulent environment. Uh, not as desirable as that first case, but um, in a stable environment, maybe that's the best you can do. Um, these off-axis cases of an organization that does not change despite uh, tremendous change and turbulence in the environment, um, that's bad. It's also bad if you have a very disorganized uh, uh, information uh, organization in um, in a tightly coupled environment. And that's where you can start having bad things like targeting errors and fratricides and so on and so forth. So, uh, So I kind of make this argument that you know organizations are constantly working on these trade-offs okay um, there's a dynamic relationship between what's happening in the organization and what's happening in the environment war is fundamentally a competitive process okay uh, the enemy does not want to be known and controlled so uh, the enemy is going to destabilize the environment okay now an organization that's trying to fight that enemy can adapt right But if they uh, uh, really, you know, uh, decentralize a a great deal, some of those adaptations will start causing all kinds of problems. Um, When those problems happen, right? So you shoot down your own aircraft, you blow up the Chinese embassy, you shoot up a wedding party. Suddenly management says, oh my gosh, we've got to intervene and fix our processes. Like We've got to be able to do better than this. So they start imposing more rules, coming up with new ways to do things, and come up with a better fit for the environment that they now understand. If they solve that, that's great. Um, uh, But now they're in a world in which the adversary or chance or nature, right, Uh, may start changing the environment once again. So you kind of go around and around and around, right? The environment changes, the organization tries to fix it, uh, uh, bad things happen, the organization then uh, intervenes. And you can then get into my second claim, which is more the long-term claim that says, as organizations kind of go through this process, they tend to pile on more and more controls, they tend to get more and more complex, they have more sophisticated, nuanced ways of processing uh, information. But because they're going around and around these different uh, uh, modes of information practice, right? they don't actually have kind of a final you know, performance advantage. They get more complex without uh, being definitively more effective.
1: I want to move now to uh, the topic of fog, friction, and Clausewitz. So first of all, who is Carl von Clausewitz? And second, to oversimplify matters a bit, Clausewitz has a negative view of fog and friction, but you disagree. Why can these things be a good thing?
0: Yeah, uh, so who is Clausewitz? Clausewitz is probably the patron saint of you know academic security studies. Uh, Clausewitz was a Prussian officer who, um, in the early 19th century, was looking at a dramatic change in the nature of war um, wrought by the Napoleonic revolution, the mass mobilization uh, revolution, and um, tried to think deeply about the nature of war. And um, Clausewitz famously describes uh, war as a duel, right? There are opposing wills that are trying to impose their way on the other, um, and uh, and they're doing this in a very very kind of violent contest, right So uh, uh, war is politics by other means. Uh, it's politics by means that are violent, Frustrating, uh, full of passion, chance, and uncertainty. Sometimes describe uh, Clausewitz's view of war as the rational use of irrational means. So, uh, friction, uncertainty, violence, fear, exhaustion are all fundamental to the experience of war. And this resonates with anybody uh, that has ever been involved with or read about kind of combatant experience ever, right? Nothing ever goes right, things break down, uh, the organization is at war with itself, right? There's this tremendous friction. Clausewitz uses these mechanical metaphors of machines seizing up, right, machines uh, uh, encountering all of this resistance uh, within their their own components, okay? Um, and, And Clausewitz says, hey, you know, the only way to deal with this, and he literally says, you have to have genius, right? And genius is this romantic idea that you will have basically someone like Napoleon, right, who is able to see the big picture and is able to transcend rules and creatively come up with uh, new solutions. Um, he's able to you know, not get uh, totally bogged down by um, all of the friction and certainty and pressures that are, that are going on at the moment. Okay, so, um, so in a sense, this project is saying, okay, let's take this Clausewitzian idea that everybody has kind of you know, said, hey, this makes a lot of sense. think about it in the digital world Uh, and i should say that you know some several people that have uh, been enthusiastic about digital technology have written Books with titles like Lifting the Fog of War, right? This, this kind of notorious book by uh, Admiral uh, Bill Owens wrote just before the Iraq war that you know, technology would help lift the fog of war. Well, of course, that didn't happen, right? There's a great deal of friction and uncertainty. And one thing that this book points out in its studies of information practice is that that friction persists, and the friction is in our interactions with digital technology, with the organization's interactions uh, with itself. Okay, so that friction continues even though you have all these tools that were supposed to improve awareness. They're supposed to reduce uncertainty, but the very tools that are intended to reduce uncertainty become new sources of uncertainty. So that's number one is that friction, good old clause 15 friction, still exists with us. I call it information friction. Okay, but uh, part two of that is okay, if genius is the solution, this is no longer just about the commander, right, the great Napoleonic genius. Um, There's a little bit of genius in all of us, right? And uh, uh, practitioners, um, junior officers, um, non-commissioned officers, um, uh, are dealing with this friction often in very, very creative ways. They're coming up with uh, new hacks, right? They are maybe writing a little bit of code. They're um, uh, maybe coming up with new prototypes. Uh, They are coming up with new... Uh, ways to use technology in ways that um, uh, were not expected before the conflict. And that allows them to actually start working through this friction. And I think that this is actually really, really important for dealing with uh, the inherently turbulent nature of war. So I think that while uh, I, I totally agree with the Clausewitzian view of kind of friction as a source of resistance and difficulty within the machine. It's also important to recognize that friction can be a source of traction that allows the organization to start working towards new solutions. So uh, friction is uh, inevitable, but it's also part of this mechanism that allows organizations to start adapting from the bottom up by by leveraging that inherent genius
1: that they've got. Right now. The heart of your book is four case studies, which really help uh, concretize all the ideas and the theory we just we just discussed. We unfortunately are not going to have time to get to all of them to- today. However, I want to look at at least a few of them in depth. So let's begin with the British. How do the British operationalize good information practice during the Battle of Britain? <laughs>
0: So I I included this case for you know a couple of reasons um, you know number one it is uh, really really well known everybody knows that it was a success case when you look at the kind of historical command and control literature from the 1970s and 80s uh, people are always talking about the Battle of Britain as a case in which the use of uh, information technology in this case uh, radars. Um, helped uh, Britain to overcome its uh, quantitative disadvantages versus Germany. So Germany had more uh, fighters and bombers than um, the British Air Force had. Um, the British Air Force had to stay alive in order to uh, dissuade, you know, the Germans from launching a land invasion. Okay. So, um, so if I have a story about information technology uh, being dependent on these conditions, we sure better see those conditions in one of the most famous cases of successful command and control. And while there's been a ton of ink spilled on the Battle of Britain, I don't think those conditions have been uh, sufficiently appreciated. And there are two of them. Uh, Number one, uh, the problem that the British had to solve was incredibly stable. Okay. Uh, They were on an island they were being attacked from the continent they're being attacked by the air the things coming at them from the continent were all enemy aircraft there weren't civilian airliners they didn't have to worry about you know what what else was going on in the land war They didn't have all this multi-domain stuff going on so in a sense there was a very you know simple it was so difficult but like there's a a simple understandable problem that was amenable to representation number two uh, uh, the organization dedicated a lot of time to solving this particular problem, and they started trying to solve this problem right at the end of the First World War. And uh, if you look at the actual processes that the British put in place at the end of the First World War and during systematic exercises in uh, throughout the 1920s, these were exactly the same processes that they used in 1940. OK, so uh, the problem was stable enough to allow uh, the organization to really figure out how it was going to solve this problem. And so when they invented radar, you just kind of popped these sensors into a pre-existing organizational solution. And the Germans were kind enough to give the British exactly the problem that they had trained for. We always say that, you know militaries fight the last war. In this case, the British did fight the last war, and that was a good thing because that was exactly the war that the Germans gave them. So you had kind of these unique uh, conditions of having a stable problem, an organization that was really well equipped to solve it. Some details I'm skipping over here. Um, And that allowed the British to Substitute information for that, right? To use information to overcome their quantitative disadvantages against the Germans. And this is a really cool case because you get to see that these organizational and strategic conditions are making the difference, uh, rather than technology, which you know by all respects is far less sophisticated than anything we have today. <laughs>
1: So the British, as you, as you argue, really had everything teed up for them, and yet they almost squandered um, that advantage. Can you talk a little bit about the bureauc- bureaucratic politics that almost sacrificed the uh, good information practice that the British developed?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in any, any kind of good qualitative cases, you want to kind of look for a within-case uh, variation. And, um, you know, in the British case, it's, it's fun to look at these kind of fine grained cases of when the organization uh, was destabilized or when it almost uh, destabilized. Similarly, when the the problem uh, starts to change a little bit, and there's lots of interesting things that happen throughout this episode. Um, but in particular, I guess I'll, I guess I'll highlight too uh, with um, the British, right? So if if I'm arguing that their success is based on Having the organization agree with itself that air defense is really important. We're going to solve it um, by having a grid of sensors that then feed into a centralized location where we can develop a picture of the airspace. And then that will go out to our squadrons in this kind of nicely you know, organized hierarchical system where everybody agrees what you're doing and why you're doing. That's kind of the basic argument. So we look at at, at places where that almost fell apart. Um, One was on the scientific side, right? There were a couple of really interesting disagreements amongst scientists about how they should go about solving uh, this problem, right? So, uh, you know, Churchill's uh science advisor was a very very colorful character named Felix Lindemann and he had all kinds of ideas other than radar and he had some real kind of personal rivalries with Henry Tizard who's sort of a, you know, one of the heroes in the story that helped kind of manage the scientific process and um you know he was really kind of planting uh these ideas in Churchill's mind that uh you know, the radar program was going off the rails and it wasn't going to work, That they needed to look at some of these other uh, crazy schemes that he had. And uh, Churchill, who at this time, is kind of a backbench MP, right? Starts to use this as a way of kind of like causing problems and grandstanding for his own political purposes. This very nearly like discloses this secret radar program uh, publicly, which potentially could have been a disaster, right? If the Germans would have really understood what the British were doing and how they were integrating uh, uh, radar into air defense, um, maybe they would have come up with a way of attacking the system, which they never actually did. Um, fortunately, this all works out. Churchill finally is read right into the program and realizes that uh, radar is going along well. Uh, and so, you know, secrecy is maintained. So they dodged that bullet. Uh, the other problem, and... Uh, you know, that that some historians have made a big deal about is this dispute within the RAF about the desirability of of air defense, right? So uh, at the same time... British Bomber Command is hard over on offensive strategic bombing, and there's a whole lot of noise about that. And so people have talked about, uh, hey, this was a very offensively minded Air Force that neglected uh, defense until the last moment when you know uh, uh, Churchill and some other people step in and force the organization to change. Uh, historically, that's that's just not the case, right? Um, we actually see an organization that totally agrees that defense is a good idea, thinks it's such a good idea that it actually doesn't talk a lot about it, but invests a ton in it exercise it systematically whereas the bomber command guys that uh, are not getting stuff are screaming and making a lot of noise uh, so there are a couple of tight points at which you know this kind of internal debate about whether um, the the British Air Force should be offensive or defensive uh, uh, threatens to to, to to mess up the procurement of fighters or a couple of other things but again um, you know Uh, Cooler heads prevail, and this organizational consensus does endure. But again, any of these could have potentially derailed the the radar effort and destabilized that organizational uh, 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 solution, which was essential in in the actual battle itself. Excellent.
1: Let's... Fast forward a, a few decades here to your next case study. Um, the U.S. Department of Defense is, is kind of infamous for being a sclerotic and bloated bureaucracy, but but you tell a story from the not-too-distant past about some impressive innovation that occurs within the military, which you actually experienced up close. What is Falconview?
0: Okay, so uh, this case study kind of takes the same approach uh, Air campaign practices that we look at in this, you know, ancient 1940 case, and brings it up into the 1980s and 1990s when, uh, you know, the U.S. Air Force has you now totally embraced uh, digital technology, digital networks, and is coping to integrate that into air operations. Um, and uh, and you're right. There is this stereotype, not unwarranted, about uh, military weapons procurement as being uh, slow, expensive, bureaucratic, all kinds of uh, political problems that you know result in weapon systems being uh, late, uh, over budget, um, not quite synced up with current battlefield requirements, etc., etc. Um, but uh, in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, something very interesting happens in the the US uh, Air Force and Air National Guard. Um, you have pilots who, you know, are usually very technically inclined. They come from an engineering background, they've all got college, you know, degrees, and so they're very savvy, they're also very motivated because they're responsible for uh, their own flight planning and their own, you know, management of the missions. And so they start buying pocket calculators and early PCs, and they start coming up with ways to like automate and digitize some of their flight planning. Um, And some of these programs become uh, incredibly successful. Pilots start sharing them with one another. And you have this kind of interesting phenomena of these grassroots mission planning programs that start integrating uh, very, very sophisticated um, mapping and planning capabilities including eventually the ability to take that planning data and actually upload it directly into the jet's uh, avionics systems, okay? Uh, we're very, very used to thinking about Silicon Valley and some of these stories uh, about things starting in dorm rooms and garage uh, you know, operations. So Apple starts in a garage, uh, Google and Facebook start in dorm rooms, right? And they turn into these, like, huge giants. We're not used to thinking about that happening in the military, but in fact, that that exact same thing did happen in the 1980s and 1990s, and these uh, warfighter-produced programs uh, didn't just take off. They became incredibly successful. They didn't just stay in the Air Force. They became popular in the Navy. They didn't just stay in the aviation community. They went to the Special Operations Community. They went to the Coast Guard. They even went outside the military. So you had kind of this early version of this program, which was... Yeah, it's basically uh, Google Maps today, you know, if you log on, like, like that experience uh, was, was kind of an early version of that, but it was produced kind of internally through these bottom-up grassroots efforts. Very, very surprising uh, story.
1: Dr. Lindsay. You've now given our, lins- our listeners two pretty rosy pictures of information technology in practice, and I want to hear what happens when something goes wrong, because it would simply be out of character in 2020 to do otherwise. Tell us about Iraq.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, uh, so everybody knows um, you know, that things went wrong uh, in Iraq, but maybe we don't always uh, appreciate how um, they went wrong. Uh, you know, First of all, Iraq, from an information technology perspective, is, is super interesting um, in two ways. Number one, obviously, the rosy pictures of lifting the fog of war don't work out, right? So Admiral Owens in 2000 says, oh, we're going to have a very clear picture of a battle space the size of Iraq. And then three years later... A battle space exactly the size of Iraq um, is a very, very confusing and uncertain place and that, you know, the U.S. is struggling for years to understand what kind of problem that it's dealing with. OK, to try and understand uh, exactly what the insurgency, in fact, there's multiple insurgencies are, where they come from, what their sources are, how they're interacting with and growing up from the population. Very difficult and ambiguous problem, okay? So uh, that's that's a a well-known and appreciated story. The less appreciated story is that during this same conflict, you see this massive embrace of digital network technology, and the network centric is kind of the term of art, the network centric technology, which supposedly failed uh, to deliver in Iraq, is actually completely embraced. And it's embraced not by the navies and air forces that originally articulated this view of network centric warfare. It's embraced by special operations forces on the ground in this land campaign. Um, This is most associated with uh, General Stanley McChrystal's organization, Joint Special Operations Command, uh, that put together uh, this organization that was very, very good at gathering information from all different sources, satellites, signals, intelligence, uh, drones, uh, some sources on the ground, fusing that information together and then running special operations raids to then uh, identify what was going on in the insurgency. Uh, Bring in insurgents interrogate them uh, look at the pocket litter and computers that are found on the battlefield uh, Use operations to generate intelligence use intelligence to cue raids and run this over and over and over again to uh, Try and defeat the insurgency. That's the theory. So what's surprising about this is that you have this kind of network centric organization that evolves in the midst of a conflict Right, which was supposedly a failure of network-centric warfare, right? So that, that's kind of very, very interesting. That kind of tees up this, this thing. And so my interest then in was like, okay, like, let's, again, let's unpack this and try and look at a specific unit that was doing this. So <clears throat> I had the, the fortune or, or misfortune to, um, to spend some time in two thousand. Uh, 7 and 8 as a reservist, mobilized with the Special Operations Task Force in western Iraq, in Ambar province. Um, this was not part of Joint Special Operations Command, it was actually a, a different Special Operations uh, Unit, but it was trying to do some of the same kinds of things. So I got to have an up-close look at how this organization gathered information, made sense of it, and used it to uh, to try and affect what was going on. Um, but what I found, I guess, was a little surprising. Um, while this organization uh, did have a whole lot of data uh, at its disposal, um, data from drones, data from human sources, um, you would think that that would help them have a better picture of what was happening in uh, Iraqi society out there in, in you know, along the Euphrates River and, in towns like Fallujah and Ramadi. Um, What actually happened was that this data tended to reinforce assumptions that this organization had about the kinds of operations it wanted to do, the kinds of targets that it hoped to see, and it used technology to sort of systematically filter out the world. And so ironically, I found that the Navy SEALs were using technology not to see the world as it was, but to see the world as they wanted it to be. And technology gave them the power to do that. Technology wasn't forcing Navy SEALs to see a world full of targets and insurgents, um, but it helped to amplify these cultural biases that they brought to the problem.
1: I thought this was a particularly fascinating case because of the um, role that intentionality seemed to play. And, as you move towards a counterinsurgency campaign where the uh, strategy was politically quite ambitious and idealistic, finding a way to spread that understanding throughout a military organization and concretize it in the minds of soldiers is exceptionally difficult. Would you yeah. agree with that?
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, again, another thing that is, that is interesting and is not super well understood uh, about Iraq you know in, in Iraq there's sort of this general you know just so story that's told about uh, when this military went into Iraq uh, it was uh, difficult because it thought it was fighting uh, a normal war Turned out it was an insurgency it had to uh, learn how to do that um, it figured out counterinsurgency doctrine uh, thanks to you know Stan you know uh, General David Petraeus and others uh, who popularized and disseminated this. Um, these were ideas that were, um, again, how the story goes, were understood by, uh, you know, United States special forces, but they had to disseminate them throughout the entire force. OK, a cool. little nice just a story. Um, so we had this very interesting world in which um, something that was supposedly well understood by special operations forces was disseminated throughout conventional forces while at the same time special operations forces were becoming more and more focused on this enemy-centric targeting problem rather than a population-centric uh, counterinsurgency problem so there was this weird kind of inversion where i was with this unit right which you know you would think okay this is all about irregular warfare it understands war amongst the people but in fact it's even more focused on the military targeting problem than the conventional forces in this case the united states marine corps in in ambar so so you're right like we had kind of uh some real variation across different parts of the u.s military in how they understood the war that they were in and how they understood their ability to go through it so the book kind of contrasts right the way in which uh the marine corps in Anbar province approaches things and they take a very very population-centric approach of working by, with, and through uh, the local population, um, encouraging uh, taking advantage of uh, local Iraqi-driven bottom-up initiatives, uh, which incidentally happened before the surge and counter doctrine gets imposed by the, the rest of the military. That's a different story. Um, but in that same territory, in Ambar province, you also have these special operations groups that are very, very focused on the targeting problem, right? Um, almost to the exclusion of all else. they talk about doing kind of winning hearts and minds, but they're really, really focused on finding, fixing and finishing insurgents. So just having that variation across units, um, you know, is is suggestive of the kinds of kind of uh, uh, complex, disorganized, bottom-up, what I call organic modes of of organizing things. But at the same time, within this Navy SEAL organization, you also had extremely strong consensus about what should be doing. So um, whereas in these first two stories that we told, kind of the just-so story in in, uh, the Battle of Britain, which was a nicely kind of top-down, hierarchical, organized, uh, uh, institutionalized solution, and then this nice... Bottom up story about Falcon View, where it was like an organic, adaptive thing, and that was great. We had this complicated mixture in the unit that I was with in uh, in Western Iraq, where you had um, you had the kind of top down consensus, like the Battle of Britain, about what the organization wanted to do. It wanted to hunt insurgents, but you also had this very, very organic bottom up way of um, going about doing that that you had in Falcon View. And this interacted in this very perverse way where you had practitioners that were responding to friction to trying to improve what they were doing but they were guided by this vision this consensus informed by navy seal culture on how they did that okay so friction kind of encouraged them to continue optimizing along the path that the organization wanted rather than um, what I argue would have been most appropriate for uh, for the actual environment. And that results in this condition that I describe as insulated information practice. And that's when uh, uh, information practice responds more to the incentives of the organization rather than the environment.
1: In the final chapter of the book, you develop some recommendations. I want you to explain um, what you ultimately call adaptive management to our listeners uh, and how it can help warfighters improve their information practice, but I'm going to ask that you use one of two analogies to do so. Combined arms warfare or JAZZ? Go. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The JAZZ
0: one's great, I didn't see that one coming, but uh, yeah, it works. So so this this is a great segue from the case we just talked about, because in many ways, the uh, task force in AMBAR combined the worst of both worlds, right? They had kind of an insulated um, uh, view of the world, but they also had a very friction filled uh, world of kind of breakdowns and mistakes. So you had both kind of like the failures of top down and the failures of of bottom up um, uh, in the same case, kind of remarkable, right? So um, it kind of goes to the reason that like, it would be nice to have an organization that could have the best of both worlds, right? Wouldn't it be nice to have the good things that management can bring you, right? A common vision on how you should fight, and how you should organize, what kinds of things matter in the world, but also the ability to, um, to adapt and change in a smart way um, as the environment starts to change. And it's going to change because, well, we're talking about war. It's a very hyper-competitive um, environment so uh, so you know I, I kind of come up with a couple of, of recommendations on how to do that and so I'll, I'll, I'll first take your uh, the combined arms uh, analogy so uh, the idea here is that we take something that militaries already understand well at least have understood since you know the, the 20th century uh, combined arms which is a way of giving the initiative to very very junior commanders and letting them shoot move and communicate if you can watch any kind of military movie these days, right? You see this, right? The the infantry's moving, they're coordinating with tanks and they're calling for fire from artillery and the jets come in and, you know, the generals kind of manage the project but they give a lot of initiative to to troops on the ground to shoot, move and communicate, okay? Um, That only works if you have people that are really, really well-trained they speak the same language, they've got the same concepts, uh, they've trained together to do this in difficult situations. So you have a common vision, a common set of doctrinal concepts that then enable at runtime this incredibly fluid, bottom-up, improvisational, jazz-like way of fighting war. Okay. So combined arms warfare is kind of uh, uh, jazz in the industrial age, if you will. Um, And my argument is like, well, we need to adopt the same approach in the way that we uh, uh, build, procure, and manage uh, large-scale command and control systems. Um, And what that means is that you're not just shooting, moving, and communicating, but you're actually uh, intervening, changing, redesigning, prototyping, and hacking uh, the systems uh, in near real time. I actually call this runtime design to... To, to sort of riff off of this idea that you know uh, most of traditional design work happens at design time, and so you know uh, there are requirements. Those requirements are led out to a contractor. The contractor builds and tests the system. Gives it gives to the military, and then they operate it. But in fact, right, what actually happens in the real world is that operations involves tinkering and redesigning. So if we take that kind of combined armor warfare idea, but then import it, it into this arena, then it's a set of kind of you know stories about, hey, we need to have some baseline consensus on what the organization should do, on what kinds of skills that are involved. Um, We need to kind of raise both the technical and the organizational acumen of practitioners so that when they are engaging in this bottom up improvisational coordination, they understand how they are potentially uh, uh, interacting and affecting uh, other users. So it's kind of a call to really push technical expertise forward and to have the organization itself recognized that this ferment of creative activity is actually essential to um, uh, 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 performing well in a digitally intensive environment. Uh, because my big concern is, and we talk about this in the book, and you know, plenty of other examples, is that we're actually going in the opposite direction. Uh, uh, our concerns about uh, systems not working, about them not interoperating, about cybersecurity, right, are actually uh, uh, creating this drive within organizations to really lock down and overmanage their their um, information systems, and I think that this is a really really big danger because you know we risk actually um, bleeding that bottom up uh, uh, capability, which actually makes these systems run in practice.
1: Now the book concludes with what I admit is the most enjoyable and I'll even venture lively methodology section that I have ever read in my life, which says something about you and it says something about methodology sections. In it, you write that the, quote, logic of presentation of the book is quite different from the, quote, logic of discovery. Why did you want to tell your readers about the logic of discovery?
0: Okay, uh, well, so I think the reason that, well, there's there's many reasons that methodology sections, sections are boring. I will tell you that methodology sections in ethnographic and anthropological work are far more exciting, um, and, you know, that community has kind of embraced... What they call confessional accounts, right? Which is like openly admitting that um, the researcher that's doing field work, right, is a big part of like how these concepts are eventually presented. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of that detail tends to be, you know, swept under the rug, Um, even in like very, very kind of uh, formal. Statistical large n, or kind of compared to qualitative casework, right? We present this picture as if, oh, I sat back, I came up with a really clear dependent variable, I came up with some half hypotheses, I came up with a really clear. Uh, research methodology, and I went out and tested it and did things. And that's great, and that's the way that science should happen. But um, the the evidence from the history of science, in both the natural and social science, is overwhelmingly clear that like, that's not actually how science really happens, right? The information practice of science is much more of this kind of messy, friction-filled interaction between bottom-up and top-down processes that the book describes, okay? So I kind of wanted to be honest about that, right? Uh, the way it gets packaged is really important, and that's how you kind of make a convincing rational case. But the way you get there is kind of full of friction and difficulty and contingency. So in a sense, I kind of wanted to do that just to sort of point out something that everybody knows but our disciplinary norms don't really allow us to say out loud.
1: Terrific. Um... I think this has been an excellent conversation, Dr. Lindsay, but we're running short on time, so I want to wrap up with two quick questions. First, if your readers could take away one thing from this book, what would you want it to be? And second, I was pretty struck by the range of sources that you drew on for this book. You cited, for example, Alice in Wonderland at, at one point. What was your favorite thing that you read during research?
0: So in answer to your first question, I guess I'm waffling here, but it depends on which audience I'm talking to. Part of the challenge of this book, it was that it spans um, at least three very, very different communities. One is the kind of uh, practitioner-centric security studies world. One is the international relations scholarship world. And the other is the uh, history and sociology of technology. So I'd probably say different things to uh, any of them. But uh, I think the overall message is that the means of reducing uncertainty are themselves sources of uncertainty and so we need to have some serious humility in what it's possible to achieve with digital technology uh let's see
1: and your your favorite thing
0: yeah my my favorite thing um oh gosh um i had i had many favorite things um going through this um All Many of my least favorite things are, um, ironically, um, in some ways,
1: much more salient in my mind. <laughs> least favorite is also welcome.
0: <laughs> uh, I guess I, I will say, you know, maybe this is part of what also made the methodology session fun. Um, you know, this... This book was, you know, a long time in coming. You know, we we started off with this anecdote from Kosovo, which is now uh, twenty-one years ago, right? And uh, this book um, draws on you know, my dissertation, which is, you know, now ten years old, right? So I kind of you know, threw the entire project aside, uh, did a bunch of work on cybersecurity, and then you know, kind of came back to this. So um, you know, there's been some serious, serious like. Uh, growing pains and difficulties with this. It's the mark of, you know, any, I think any author that struggles with their topic, you know, ends up uh, hating it by the time they actually uh, publish a book on it. So, um, you know, I kind of a love hate relationship with it. And I think that's totally um, not not uncommon, but, you know, this was such a long process and in many ways such a personal process that, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, those are amplified. Um, you know, the the, the thing that, that I have always, I guess, been, excited and motivated about, I, you know, uh, there is this theory in there, which, you know, makes a lot of good sense in the international relations security studies world. But for me, what what I was very excited about was kind of just ask the basic questions of like, like how do people actually learn things? I'm kind of just fascinated by the very, very fine grained interactions between people and representations and this constant switching of attention between what's happening in the world and what you're looking at so for me i think um the the thing that was you know really interesting exciting was was getting into the 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 sociology of technology work that kind of does just do this really really fine-grained detail look at how science and knowledge actually gets put together because Once you start looking at your interaction with information artifacts, whether it's a book or a digital representation, and you start asking questions about how it's put together, it kind of shifts the way that you experience and see the world, right? There's this like slight shift of the world on its axis. And so I think that was probably my, my favorite, you know, experience was just actually having a, a different way in which I perceive the world once I started to really appreciate uh, this persistent mediation of my world and how I was experiencing that world from these technologies and all of the organizations and institutions um, that, that made them a long-winded answer. I apologize for that, but that'd be my
1: Well, I'm very happy you said that because this book really is going to be of interest to so many more people than only those interested in military affairs and it's for exactly the reason you just said with that um, I'm gonna sign off so thank you so much dr. Lindsay for joining us today and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us at the new books Network
0: terrific this has been a lot of fun thanks thanks a lot for having me on board